All right, guys. You can go ahead and have a seat. So we're starting off a little bit different this morning. We're actually going to jump right into God's Word. And just as a reminder, we are studying through the book of Acts. And what we've seen is that the church in the book of Acts has been fast growing. There's been lots of action. Last week we saw the conversion of the Apostle Paul. And the word that keeps coming to mind as we go through the book of Acts is the word multiplication. And in fact, we're coming across kind of a summary verse this morning. If we go back one chapter, this is the way that Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, summarized what has happened in the book of Acts thus far. In Acts 9.31, he said, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So God is doing this internal work in the life of believers in the early church where sort of paradoxically, they're both walking in fear, in other words, reverence of who God is and in comfort by his Holy Spirit. And as a result of that, their lives are outward focused. And because their lives are outward focused, they're sharing the gospel with other people, the church continues to grow and multiply, which we can kind of take a general principle from what's happened in the book of Acts so far and what we're going to see this morning and say that the church is meant to multiply. In other words, the church was not meant to be a stagnant country club the church was meant to be a missionary force. Not so much concerned about our own comfort, but concerned about reaching lost people with the good news of Jesus. So what we're going to look at this morning are three convictions of a multiplying church. Three convictions of a multiplying church as we look at Acts chapter 10 and kind of allude to part of chapter 11. So the first conviction of a multiplying church is that God is at work in unbelievers' lives. So we're going to see that in the life of Cornelius, and actually his family as well, in Acts chapter 10, starting with verses 1 through 5. It says, At Caesarea was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended up as a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. This is really interesting. We've got this man named Cornelius, who does not yet know Jesus. But he is a religious man. So from all outward appearances, he's upright, moral. 
He's even a prayerful person, and he even has real communication with God. And here's what's interesting about that. I think that sometimes when we think of unbelievers, specifically some of us with our background in the church, we think of really obviously lost people. And so you're thinking of somebody who's doing drugs, really joyless, doesn't have any sense of fulfillment in their life, and certainly would never be pursuing God in any way. And so you sort of paint this picture of unbelievers as sort of curmudgeons, which I think sort of can create this idea in our mind that unbelievers are people that we as Christians are supposed to distance ourselves from. So it's like, I don't want to catch what they have. And so I'm going to sort of get in my holy huddle in the church, and I'm going to only get around Christian people who are good, moral, upstanding people like I am, and I'm going to stay away from unbelievers because that's kind of scary. And what we see in this passage is really a, a monkey wrench thrown in that simplistic worldview. Because we see that God is actually at work in the life of an unbeliever before he has any real face-to-face -face contact with a believer. Which really introduces us to a theological concept that I think is helpful called common grace. Common grace allows us to understand that God is at work in every person's life that we ever come across. The Holy Spirit has been sent into the world to convict the world about sin and righteousness and judgment, which means you never meet a person in your life who God is not working on. Which does a couple things. It sort of begins to take the fear away from us, but it also gives us encouragement to begin to step into people's lives, not as the first actor, but as someone who is simply responding to what God is already doing in people's lives. Because I've been reminded of this. My son Luke, I, I think I've told you guys this before, he's playing hockey, which is awesome. I love that he's playing hockey. I feel very Minnesotan going to hockey practices and standing around with all the hockey dads. And I have to, like, to try to be genuine around them, I have to not nod along when they talk about hockey things that I don't know what they're talking about. And so I've come in sort of as an outsider and just been trying to learn as much as I can about these guys. But here's what I've found out. Even the guys that are unbelievers, they're hardworking in their jobs. They love their kids. In fact, they even do things like monitor what their kids watch on TV. They're actually, it's convicting to me sometimes when I see how much intentionality they put into their parenting. And I actually walk home at different times and have conversations with my wife, and I'm like, man, this, this guy who's not a believer is parenting his child in a way that I actually want to be more like him. 
And here's what that can begin to do, even in my life. I can begin to sort of feel like morally intimidated. That makes sense? Like I can be like, man, I'm a pastor. Like I'm supposed to have my stuff together. And I begin to forget about this category of God's common grace at work in the lives of unbelievers. And I can actually start to back away and think that I have nothing to offer these guys. So here's my encouragement to you. In light of this passage, what God's doing in the life of Cornelius, before anyone even talks to him, I would encourage you, when you come across unbelievers, not to back away in fear. Because God is at work in their life. And so when you see good, upstanding non-Christians, you can give credit to God for his work in their life. You see, just like it's only by the grace of God that I am what I am, they might not even know it, but they're actually only who they are by God's grace as well. And it's your job as a Christian actually to help them understand that gently over time. Maybe just through encouraging them that you see something in their life that you admire. And the second thing is, we don't need to be intimidated by people's morality because we're saved by grace. Okay? We don't believe as Christians that we are saved by being morally upstanding. We believe that we are saved by sheer grace. So here's the reality of that. This is a really freeing reality. Your non-Christian neighbor, friend or coworker, could be a more moral person than you are. Because Christianity, at the end of the day, you don't get saved by being moral. You get saved by grace. And morality, obeying God's law, begins to be evidenced in your life by the presence and power of the Holy Spirit, but it's not something that you can take credit for anyway. So when we're around unbelievers, I think this passage just reminds us to relax. To relax. God is at work. God is gracious. God is good. Okay, so we got that baseline understanding. The second conviction of a multiplying church is that God is at work in leaders' lives. So I think sometimes we can start to get restless in the church and feel like we've got all these passions and things that we want to see God do, and we don't think that the leadership, i.e. me, is on board. And there's this restlessness, and it's like, I would love to see our church do this. It seems like it's going this direction. And what we see next is that God is not only talking to Cornelius, this unbelieving guy, he's also talking to Peter. So Acts 10, we pick up the story in verse 9. We're reading through verse 17. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so that's these people that Cornelius sent to get Peter, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But that while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. 
In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. Okay, so here's what we've seen so far in the book of Acts. We've seen mainly Jewish people getting saved. And in the last couple chapters, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch get saved, who was not Jewish, but he was likely already converted to Judaism. And we also saw some Samaritans get saved, who were very familiar with Judaism and were sort of half-breeds. What we're seeing here is God beginning to open the early church's eyes for the need for the Gentiles to hear the gospel. Here's why that's a really big deal. The Jews were incredibly prejudiced against the Gentiles. Racially, religiously, and culturally. And one of the main things that separated the Jews from the Gentiles were the food laws. The Jews were very specific about what they ate based on the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. So here's what's happening in this passage. God is coming to Peter, and he's telling him, through this vision, you can eat anything. It seems incredibly clear, doesn't it? Like, there's this sheet coming out. It has all of these unclean animals on it that Jews typically weren't supposed to eat. And God is saying to Peter, you can eat all of them. And Peter's like, wakes up from this trance after God has told him this a number of different times. And he's scratching his head. He's like, perplexed. Like, what does this mean? I don't understand. Like, God just said to me, you can eat any food. What could he possibly mean by this? Which is really interesting that at this point, Peter is perplexed about this. Before we studied the book of Acts, you'll remember we studied the gospel of Mark. So you might remember this passage. But in Mark 7, verses 18 through 19, Jesus said this to the disciples. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach, and then out of the body. And then in parentheses it says, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So here's the reality. Peter has known that all foods were clean for years. He knew it in his head, but his prejudice was keeping it from going to his heart. He knew the information, but he couldn't possibly believe it. And what that did in his behavior is it kept him from bringing 
the message of the gospel to the Gentiles. Because he thought, I can't go in their house. I can't have a meal with them. I can't be around them because they're unclean and we're clean because we keep the ceremonial law. And so what God does, in order to open the whole church to this idea that the gospel is supposed to go to the Gentiles, is he works on their leader. He works on the guy who has the most influence and probably one of the guys who is the most prejudiced. He begins to work in Peter's life. And here's the thing. It is a slow process. It takes years. It takes visions. It takes dreams. It takes him processing the information with other people around him. Guys, this reality of God working in a leader's life to open up people's eyes to a mission field has actually happened right before our eyes in the SALT network. So when I joined the SALT network in 2010, the SALT network had just planted its first church. It wasn't called the SALT network yet because it was just two churches, and it's awkward if you call two churches a network. (laughs) And so the total people involved in the SALT network at that time was less than 3,000 between those two churches. The church in Iowa City had just been planted. And the reason that the church in Iowa City had been planted is because the lead pastor of Cornerstone Church's daughter got a basketball scholarship to the University of Iowa. And he went to Iowa City, Troy went to Iowa City, to try to find a church for his daughter. And he sat in church after church after church, crying his eyes out and saying, I don't think that any of these churches are the one. And so then he went to the college pastor, Mark Aaron at the time, and he said, you need to plant a church in Iowa City. So part of that is influenced by his own selfish motives. Because up to that point, the vision for Cornerstone Church had been to be a marginally better megachurch. Let's just keep growing this thing. Let's get thousands and thousands more people. But what God did is he began to work in the influential leader's heart through his daughter moving to Iowa City. And slowly, over time, all of us who have been close enough to Troy to know have seen God create in him a passion for church planting in our network. And the total people in our network from 2010 to today has gone from under 3,000 to over 10,000. And in fact, Jordan and I and some salt staff will be going next weekend to the SALT conference where there will be over 2,600 college students at a conference who represent all of just the college students at those churches. So God began to work in the life of a leader and gave him a vision for reaching more and more people, in our case, outside of Ames, in Peter's case, outside of the Jewish religion and ethnic group. And what we see in that is that God is a missionary God. 
He wants his people to continually be challenged to move out into new places and new spaces to tell people about him. And so the first thing God did early on in the life of the church, represented in this chapter, is he removed all cultural barriers to the gospel. What Jesus was telling Peter is that the ceremonial law of the Old Testament is obsolete. In other words, God is the God of all people. And the way that you come to know God, as we'll see, is through his son, Jesus Christ, not by joining the Jewish religion, not by becoming a religious person, but by being a person of faith. Which leads us to the third conviction of the multiplying church, which is that God's word is sufficient. God's word is what changes people's lives. Let's pick up the story. Acts 10, 33 through 44. Buckley seat belts, a little bit longer of a passage. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. This is Cornelius speaking. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have commanded, been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of what he did both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. So here's what was beginning to happen in the mind of Peter. He's beginning to understand that the gospel was for all people. And that people didn't need to become Jewish in order to become Christians. They just needed the word of God. So he goes to Cornelius' house. And Cornelius has had God working on his heart. And so he actually asks Peter to tell him the gospel. Another bottom shelf gospel opportunity. And it says that Peter opens his mouth. And he walks very simply through the gospel message. He talks about the life of Jesus. He talks about his healing ministry and how the Holy Spirit was present with him. The miracles that he did. He talks about how his ministry didn't lead to him being celebrated, but it actually led to his crucifixion, his bloody death on the cross. 
And he explains that his crucifixion was about bringing lost people the forgiveness of their sins. And that this Jesus didn't stay dead, but he rose from death, verifying that he was sent by God, and that his death on the cross actually had accomplished what he said it would accomplish. And it's through his name that people are saved from their sins. And then he, un he unpacks how they're to understand his relationship to the message of the gospel. Jesus actually appeared to Peter personally and visibly and sent him out to be a witness of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And so as Peter is speaking these words, he is speaking the very word of God. Words that were actually written down for us. And we see in this passage the sufficiency of the word of God. There's no bells and whistles. There's no smoke machines. There's no amazing production. There's not a drama. There's no videos. None of that. It is the word of God preached to the Gentiles by the power of the Holy Spirit that creates the miracle of new life in them. Isn't that amazing? It's like, they're kind of like, you've said enough. We get it. They believe, and the Holy Spirit falls on them. What do you think began to happen to Peter's prejudice in that moment? The last time we sort of ran into him about the sheet coming down and the animals and the very obvious idea that he could now eat bacon, which I figured he'd be more excited about. <laughs> but now he's, he's seeing the word of God transform people's lives, which leads to, and we don't have time to get to this, this hunger for everyone else to see what he's seen. So he actually goes back to the Jerusalem church. They have the same prejudice and he tells them all, this is what happened. I went to this Gentile person's home. At first, they're judging him. They're like, what, you ate with Gentiles? And he's like, they believed the gospel message. Guys, this is what we want to see begin to happen in our church. We want to see God continue to send us to new places and new people for our church to continue to multiply. Let me pray. And then... Um, We'll have a pretty specific application to this particular message, so let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you um, for your grace. Thank you um, for this passage. Thanks for your sovereignty. That This is actually the passage that we were in as we um, plan to kind of take next steps as a church. Just ask that you would uh, give us wisdom. Thank you um, for what you did in the early church, and thank you that we can see evidence of the same kind of work in our church family. Would you, um, by your grace, just continue to pour your spirit out on us and help us to be dependent on your word as Peter was. In Jesus' name, amen.